This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Philosophy for Theologians, your conversation about the intersection of philosophy and theology. Recording out of Charlotte, North Carolina here, we're working on making this program more consistent than just occasional, as it has been, so stay tuned in the coming weeks for that. My name is Jared Oliphant, and we have a great show lined up. I'm really excited about it. First, I'll introduce our panelist. Uh, He's been on before, uh, Nathan Sasser, who is Assistant Director of Academic Affairs at the Pastors College, uh, now in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's uh, also uh, working on a PhD at the University of South Carolina. Welcome back to the program, Nathan. It's great to have you on again. Thanks, Jared. Great to be back. Yeah. We are very excited to talk with our guest, uh, Dr. Vern Poitras, who is Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Welcome to the program, Dr. Poitras. It's great to have you on. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. I have your work in front of me. It is called Logic, a God-Centered Approach to the Foundation of Western Thought, and it was just recently published by Crossway. It's a 2013 title, and it's uh, 700-plus pages, so it's very thorough, has a ton packed into it. And um, for the listeners, I thought I would mention there's a sample of the book at WTSbooks.com. So if, if you don't have a hard copy and you want to follow along with some of the questions and the things that we're talking about, um, that's a good way to, to see where we're going and where it fits into the table of contents and things like that. And I should also mention that uh, this book falls within a series, uh, either informally or formally, uh, of other books by Dr. Poizres on things like Inerrancy and Worldview, Inerrancy in the Gospels, Redeeming Science, and, and a few other titles. And you can actually find uh, a lot of those works free at uh, the site. I'll, I'll name it, and then we'll put the, the website in the show notes, frame-poithris.org. Uh, so I wanted to mention that as well, and you can check out other titles there. But uh, today we're getting into, like I said, the book Logic in particular. So I wanted to start out with... Um, just just a few things before we get into the to the book itself. Uh, kind of Wait, a person. Jared, could I sure. could I say uh, there is a plan for the logic book also to be available at the same website. Oh, it isn't there yet, uh, but uh, I don't know how long it'll take. But eventually, it'll be uh, on the website as a PDF. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah, I noticed that it wasn't there. I figured that it was because uh, publishers needed, um, you know, Crosswind needed a chance to, to sell some hard copies and uh, to get the word out there. But i um, glad that that's eventually going to be making it there. I've personally benefited from a lot of the other PDFs and, and ebooks that are on there. So that's exciting. Um, Dr. Poitras, I wanted to mention when, when you and I were together at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting uh, back in the fall 2012 in, in Milwaukee, I learned uh, something fascinating that one of your professors was Saul Kripke. And we can get into him a little bit, but uh, for me, that was particularly interesting because in, in college, I had read his book, Naming and Necessity, that definitely made a splash in the philosophical and, and modal logic world and relates to this book on logic, obviously. And then I was reading the preface to this book on logic, and um, you mentioned that Hillary Putnam was also one of your professors. And I was just wondering if you could mention, because of those formidable 
formidable figures in philosophy. Uh, what kind of impact did they have on you? What classes were you taking? Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience with, with those two guys? Well, I was uh, working on a PhD in mathematics at Harvard University, and I took uh, logic courses, uh, two from uh, Dr. Putnam and one on modal logic from uh, Saul Kripke. Uh, as part of that program, I was looking at it from a, the point of view of mathematics. As far as I was concerned, it was more mathematics. And, and uh, the classes, and there's actually one of them was an independent study rather than an in-class uh, independent study with Dr. Putnam. Uh, things about the philosophy and the larger philosophical implications did not come up in class. Uh, it's probably just as well because uh, I was at an earlier stage in my own thinking, but I appreciate what I learned, and I enjoy mathematics and the sort of mathematical logic that I was getting into. But I see it even more so in retrospect, as a kind of simplification. It's beautiful in its own way, but it's not the key to the metaphysics of the world. And so it, it had, it was part of my education in mathematics, but it didn't have a, a big impact on me philosophically. Okay, that's helpful. So it w I'm assuming it was a little bit later in your um, reading career, your academic career, that you uh, were dealing with their work in particular as it relates to some of the things that you talk about in this book? Yes, although actually this book is more strictly on the logic side, uh, although there are some supplements where I talk about the implications for philosophy. But I do believe that because logic has been around so long, and it's been as stable as it has been, that it's had a long-range effect on virtually the whole of Western civilization, and it's been a model for rationality. Uh, but I'm disputing that foundation and saying it needs to be redone in a Christian way. So I'm excited about the book and its possible impact for that reason. But it really doesn't dialogue with Putnam or Kripke or any other particular figures uh, very much because my primary point is to build a positive foundation in a Christian approach to logic. Right. Okay. Well, and on that note, how how would you relate this book to um, redeeming science? We're dealing in, with the sciences in general with, with both of these books. Do you, do you see overlap? Do you see uh, both the, these books complementing each other? or Is logic a subset? Or, or how, how have you thought about that in your own mind? Uh, well, yeah, I think they're complementary. For me, uh, this and a number of other books are part of what I could call a Kuyperian project. Uh, Abraham Kuyper stress the fact that uh, believers and unbelievers in Christ come to the whole world with a different mindset. Uh, whether you are following Christ or not makes a difference in how you think, because our thinking is imitative of God. Kuiper made that point with respect to all of life, including academic life. Well, I tried to do that in Redeeming Science. I tried to do that with respect to 
the hard sciences. And this logic book is an attempt to do it with respect to logic, and there's more coming, actually. Uh, but there's one on language where I attempted to do it with respect to linguistics and one on sociology. So I think there's a need to think through from a, from a biblically sound uh, Christian point of view uh, how does the world look uh, when we take uh, God seriously and God's presence in the world seriously and his control over the world seriously? And I believe it makes a difference all the way through academic disciplines. It doesn't mean that we utterly reject uh, the ideas that have come from non-Christians, but neither does it mean that we naively accept them. It, it takes a kind of critical sifting. And so in this book, I'm attempting to do that with the whole area of logic, beginning with Aristotle, because he's been the most influential over the centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and how would you then advise people who uh, are interested in this, who, who want to read it, um, people with different skill levels? Um, so, for example, someone who is looking at this book on logic and has never taken a logic class, um, doesn't have a philosophical background, but kind of a curiosity about um, what it means to um, think logically, to engage in logic um, as a Christian, and um, how would you address them, uh, pointing them to uh, yeah, how, the, how they should approach the book? Right. Well, I wrote the book with a spectrum of audiences in mind, and I attempted to write it so that somebody with no background, no previous experience, either philosophy or logic, can just start at the beginning and go, and it will make sense. And there are some sort of study questions at the end of each chapter that can be used to to uh, further reflect on the thing. So, this uh, book can actually be used as an introductory textbook. I think it will work for for not only college students but for high school students. You know, if they're they're uh, they've got some degree of intellectual keenness, it should work for them as their first course in logic. But it's different because it starts out talking about God and God's relation to logic, and which is not standard in the logic textbooks right. of this world. So. Yeah, there's quite a bit of that before you actually get into uh, the more technical aspects of logic. Part one is, I call it elementary logic, and that it's, it's I hope, readable <laughs> uh, by virtually anybody, and they can get their first exposure to logic, and that could serve as, a, say, a high school, you know, for a high school student could serve as a first introductory to, introduction to logic. Part two is a propositional logic. Now, that's really a part of symbolic logic, which is 20th century. That introduces special symbols, and it has a more mathematical feel to it. So it's also more challenging to people who uh, are not inclined in that area, who are more of the humanities types. Part three gets still more complexity because it introduces more symbols and more uh, advanced questions about logic, including areas of uh, what does it mean to prove something. And then part four is supplements, and that has some things that are uh, would remind people of proofs in geometry and some things that are uh, interaction with philosophy. So it's sort of, it's the sort of thing where uh, the main part of the book is just about logic, but then 
uh, I can open more vistas if uh, if uh, they go into these supplements. So that's the kind of structure of the book, and it means that uh, various readers can take it at their own level, right? And they can just start and go through part one and say, okay, now I know what logic is about. Or if they want, they can go further and see some of the developments in the 20th century. Yeah, I think that's right. It seems like there's uh, something for everyone, whether it be someone who has no familiarity with the topic or even, uh, you know, a philosophy professor who um, is thinking through a lot of the things that they teach in class and and the relationship uh, to theology and theological concepts and the Trinity. And um, so I really appreciated the the broad range that that it serves. Uh, One question I... um, want to get into a little bit uh, about the the apologetic thrust um, that's throughout. Maybe not explicitly, but uh, maybe I should say the the theological implications of uh, a lot of the things that you're talking about, particularly doctrine of God, uh, the Trinitarian focus, like we mentioned before. And um, you're careful to distinguish between the view that understands logic as independent uh, in the sense that even God is dependent on logic, and then you contrast that with the view that understands logic as revealing God's attributes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about those differences and some of the implications that you touch on in in both of those understandings of logic? Well, I think it is common since Aristotle to think of formal logic as in the end, independent of the world, but also independent of God. It's just an abstract system out there somewhere. Uh, but God is actually the creator. So you can't have something like that independent of God without it being a competing God. Uh, what I actually think is happening is that our minds are made in the image of God. So we are thinking God's thoughts after him, but not, of course, on the same level. We are creatures, and he is the creator. So the origin of logic, even as we receive it, is in God and his own self-consistency and his own faithfulness and his commitment to himself. And that's actually Trinitarian. It's not just a general theism that the Bible reveals, but... God's faithfulness, the Father's faithfulness to the Son and his love for the Son, and uh, actually the commitment to consistency is bound up with the character of the Son in particular, because the Son is identified as the Logos, the Word of God, that's closely related to the idea of reason and rationality. It's the rationality of God as manifested in the second person of the Trinity, that we are receiving as creatures. That also means that when we think about logic and logical, the laws of logic, for instance, those show the attributes of God, because it's God speaking and it's God's own self-consistency that is being manifested in those laws. Mm -hmm. Now, that's different from the world, then, who regards logical laws, for for the most part, they're thinking of them as just impersonal, mechanistic something out there. Or if you're a relativist, you think it's relative to culture, but that doesn't really work because you can't survive without believing that the world is rational. (laughs) And there's still a third view, actually, that God created the laws of logic, but that doesn't work because it makes God an unknown behind the laws. 
So we have to take to take a genuine biblical view. I believe it's seeing that logic originates in the logos in God Himself and in His Son, but then it's manifested in the created world in terms of uh, rational regularities. Okay, that which reveal God. Yeah. One of the implications, though, apologetically, is there's been a long, lot of dis- interest, of course, in theistic proofs. Can you prove that God exists? Well, I think we're already dependent on God when we start the argument or before we start it, because we're relying on logic. And in doing that, we're relying on God and his character. So it's a kind of paradoxical situation for an unbeliever of saying, well, prove that God exists, but your your own mind and your own rationality is already proved. <laughs> you know, before you even start the argument, you're also you're already relying on God. That's really a manifestation. It's one kind of illustration of the principle of Romans one that God is clearly revealed in the world He's made, including our own nature as image of God. Right and. As I read some philosophers, uh, maybe this is you're answering this this question that I'm going to ask. But I read some philosophers who would put things like two plus two equals four, uh, whether or not God exists. So is is part of what you're addressing here trying to uh, answer that question, or or uh, you know have have more of a, a theistic take on on that kind of belief? Yes, right. Because I'd say that truth goes back to God. All truth is, first of all, truth in God's mind. So it's nonsense to say, to talk about 2 plus 2 is equal to 4 without God as the sustainer and the origin of truth. So I was really interested in your take on this because, uh, you know, that problem of is logic above God or independent of God, that's, you know, uh, fascinating. So I had a question about the particular way that you're conceiving of this. So, um, you want to say that logicality is part of the character of God. It's a self-consistency. That sounds great to me. At a couple points in your text, it sounded to me like you were saying that um, God sovereignly or providentially determines that logic will apply in our created world. And to me, I started to, I just, I was wondering, I wonder if Dr. Poitras is, is he saying that, um, God could have expressed his logicality different in this world, such that, you know, would it, would it have been possible for God to create a world where the laws of logic, as we know them anyway, did not apply? Um, and I wondered that particularly because there was an analogy between the way you were pursuing the question about laws of logic and the way that you pursued the issues of laws of nature in redeeming science. Right. Yes. Well, in both areas... There's there's actually some similarities, although the laws of nature, we can see God didn't have to create a world exactly the way that we see it, sure. right? We can imagine, for instance, the law of gravitation being different or being even non-existent and there still being a world, or whether it would be a world we could live in is <laughs> another question, right? But... Uh, we can imagine that kind of difference. Logic seems to be more mysterious in that respect because we can't imagine it being different. And I would attribute that to the fact that everything goes back to God and his will, but uh, 
the theologians have long distinguished, and I believe there's a biblical basis for it, they've distinguished between what they call the free will of God in terms of things that he decided to create the world but he didn't need to, and the necessary knowledge of God. It's actually formulated in terms of knowledge. The necessary knowledge of God, God always knows himself, right? And he's always consistent with himself. So there's certain things that are necessary. It's necessary for that God is righteous, that he, uh, that he does not lie, that he cannot deny himself. There's a number of testimonies in Scripture, that kind of thing, that is part of the character of God, and it's bound up with God's faithfulness. So there are those things that are necessary, but the particularities of this world are not necessary. Now, to draw an exact line between what is and isn't necessary, you would have to be God. But we can still draw a, lo- a rough line, okay? Now, the thing about logic is that it's mostly, intuitively, it seems it's on the necessity side. It's things related to God's self-consistency. But you have to be careful because we're not God. And so we can't, you know, we don't have a divine vision to say exactly what the boundaries are. But another thing I want to stress, however, is that Sometimes if you say that something is necessary, it's necessary, for instance, that God is righteous, that he is good, that he is truthful, then that's discounted as if, well, God can't help it, so there's no need to praise him for it. Well, of course, those things are wonderful things that we should be praising him for, and the same goes for logic, whether it's necessary or whether there are some things in it that are tailored specifically to this world. It gets pretty technical, but actually there's one tiny detail, uh, or maybe I could say more than one detail about logic in its more uh, complex forms where it's not so clear that everything had to be that way. There's a thing called quantum logic that doesn't uh, obey the distributive law for for and and or. And I can't get into it, you know, without a long explanation. But it appears that the, quantum, the world of quantum mechanics does imitate some aspects of that, but it was unanticipated. It was totally a surprise when people came across it because they didn't think the world could be that way. <laughs> so that's an instance, but it is rather technical, and it doesn't mean, of course, that in ordinary life, the kind of logic that we usually use doesn't work. It does work, and it applies even for the mathematics of quantum mechanics. So there's things like that, and there's, a, there's another issue about the law of excluded middle, which I think is bound up with the difference between God's exhaustive knowledge and our limited knowledge. So in our limited knowledge, we don't necessarily know whether some things are true or not. And so they they get in some kind of middle area as far as our knowledge goes, but of course in God's knowledge, they're determinant. So that's another area that can affect how you deal with logic. But the big thing that I want to communicate is that technical logic is a simplification. The, the ultimate source of logic is in God and his richness. And so technical aspects are sort of taken, they're kind of one-dimensional. They're, they're choosing out of that something which is genuinely interesting and genuinely beautiful, but it is one-dimensional. 
And so you're simplifying. And of course, the direction that you choose to simplify is in certain respects up to you. So again, that's to say, you know, that's influenced by the fact that we are who we are and the world is the way it is, and that that's guided some of these simplifications. So you can see there's a history of logic in that respect, and you say, well, that history could have been different, you know, and the symbols that have been invented could have been different. So there's, it becomes subtle after a while it's just to, to say, now, what is necessary and what isn't? That's very helpful. Uh, yeah, as you were talking, especially on the, the front end of that, I was wondering, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, well, given who God is, if he's going to create a world, it's going to express at least some of the laws of logic as we know them. Would you say, would it be appropriate to introduce the, the term like from the scholastics that that the logicality of the world is an absolute consequent necessity um, such that God's going to create then he's going to create a logical world. Does that capture? Yeah, I I would say that, but I would also introduce a creator-creature distinction to say our understanding of that necessity is limited. And I think the problem with scholastic theology tended to be it did not reckon enough consciously and methodically with a creator-creature distinction. In fact, Kuiper himself, you know, that I've cited as sort of the one who encouraged me to do this, he at one point said, there's only one logic. And I'd say, no. You know, it makes a difference whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. It makes a difference whether you think in terms of a creator-creature distinction, because then if you're thinking in terms of a creator-creature distinction, you're always in a situation of humility. And you're saying, well, this, as best as I can do, this is my understanding and communion with God of how his own self-consistency works. But I'm a creature, right? So there still may be surprises. That's very different than saying, I know that this world has to be logical in this and this and this way. That's very helpful. And can I, can I follow that up with, with one more? And that is, I, I'm... I've, trying to sort out for myself, and what you're saying is helping me here, the relationship between conceivability and possibility. And, you know, at different points you referred to the fact that, well, we can't really conceive of a world where, you know, this doesn't hold, or we can't imagine what that would be like. Right. Uh, could, could you talk about the relationship between uh, kind of conceivability broadly, formal logic yeah. possibility, and just kind of uh, modal system? Right. Yeah. Well, one way of talking about possibility is possibility is what God could do. Okay, but that's again the level of the creator, right? And my conception of what he could do is still the level of the creature. It's my best guess at that. So just because I can't conceive of a world beyond certain limits doesn't mean that God couldn't do it. Right, and that's again a, a stance of humility of saying, uh, "I don't know what it, only God knows in an ultimate sense." You know what is consistent with His own character, but we can have confidence with this in this world because God has made Himself known. He's we really do know Him, <laughs> that we don't know Him exhaustively. 
So conceivability, as I conceive it, is not to be equated with conceivability as God conceives it. <laughs> you see, that's what uh, the move I'd make. Now, as far as possibility goes, I do get into that in in this logic book and talk about models, particularly in modal logic, models for possibility and necessity. But those models are, again, scaled down, simplified things that are beautiful and fascinating in their own right, but they don't uh, capture the creator-creature distinction within them. Ultimately, necessity is what is in accord with God's character, and possibility is in accord with what he could do, might do, but doesn't necessarily do, right? But And we access that because of our knowledge of God, but that knowledge of God is not exhaustive. There's always mystery. And the history of logic is partly the history of trying to eliminate mystery. And there's a sense in which, yeah, I want to dig and understand God and his world more and more fully, right? I don't want to just say, well, everything is a mystery and just throw up my hands at the beginning. But I think much of the history of logic and really Western rationality is the idea uh, that if we could just penetrate enough, we could eliminate mystery. And it's not true. It's not true even in the area of logic, even the area of the most formalized logic. In fact, mystery increases with knowledge because there's always more questions right, that are opened at the far end of knowledge. So that applies, I think, to the area of possibility and necessity, that you have to distinguish between God's level of knowledge and our human level, which doesn't mean our human level is worthless, but it means it's always qualified and saying, this is, you know, this is where I am at this point, and I trust that God is giving me uh, uh an understanding of how he works, but it's an understanding where there still may be surprises. That's great. Thank you. I had a question on that. I, it's been something that I have wondered about for quite a while, and I guess I've just been kind of too lazy to look into it in detail and wanted to get your thoughts on it. Nathan, you, you brought up the, the term absolute consequent necessity, and um, there I thought the, the section on modal logic, the few sections on modal logic in, in your book, um, Dr. Poitras, was extremely helpful. And I, wanted, I wondered if you had... Uh, given thought or done any work uh, maybe that I'm not aware of on relating those terms to the models that you talk about um, in, in the section on modal logic so that in other words, it seems to me that talking about absolute necessity or absolute consequent necessity are, um, you know, is that, is that almost like saying necessary necessity? And so are we getting into an S4 model or um, am I overreading that? Is there a connection between that kind of terminology and maybe the more formal structures of modal logic? Well, there may be in some philosophers' vocabulary, but as long as you raise that question, I've observed in philosophical circles uh, a use of modal logic and of models of modal logic in an attempt to deal with the issues of possibility and necessity. So they'll deal with possibility as possible worlds and necessity as truth for all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. Well, that presupposes this kind of uh, model theory of modal logic. And my complaint about that is that it's a little like using SimCity uh, to, to build a city 
or using Legos to build a, a Lego town. <laughs> that that it's fascinating, and you learn some things about real towns. But the ultimate question is, you know, how is your model related to the real town, which is a lot richer than the model? And I think people have an over-reliance on these models, which are vastly simplified. And the other thing about it is, if you have a set of possible worlds uh, that you've depicted for yourself and you make a a semi-mathematical model of, in order to view that that those worlds, you have to have a godlike vision. So you easily, very easily, fall into the trap of of uh, destroying the creator the creature distinction in your own mind. And you see, a model has to be clear, has to eliminate mystery. I think what happens is the mystery goes outside to why does this model commit have any relation to the real world? <laughs> you know, so the mystery is still there, and the mystery of what is it, is it in us that enables us to construct these models in the first place? You know, so mm-hmm. the mystery is still there, but the process of model formation is a process of abstraction and of rigor and of formalization, where you put the mystery in the periphery so that you have this very clear and nice thing, and you hope for clarity about life, but you're not getting it. It's an illusion. Well, all you're getting is a model that doesn't match life. Yeah, yeah. It suggests certain things about life, right? But then you still have to decide as a person in what ways is it really analogous to life and in what ways is it not. And I would say one of the ways it's not is that it doesn't have two levels. It doesn't have a level of creator and creature. Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to say then that you're you're trying to avoid um, if you took Van Til's two circles, you have God and then you have uh, creation as both separate circles. And um, maybe what, tell me if, if I'm onto something, if you're trying to avoid uh, encircling both of those circles and standing outside of them from a vantage point, in other words, expressing that that's an impossible thing to do. Um, is that kind of what you have no, in the back right. of your mind? Yeah, that's right. Although even that is qualified by the fact God has given us ability to think in terms of transcendence, to imagine what it would like to be a creator of worlds. And that's a wonderful power and privilege when you think about it. But don't get a fat head. (laughs) Realize that it is a privilege, but you're still a creature. But I think you're right that the tendency can be, okay, here we, here's all these possible worlds. So I'm on the level of God. I'm looking down on these possible worlds. Well, our, our being made in the image of God allows us to do that sort of mental transcendence. But it's not an absolute transcendence, right? It's still God is in his heavens and I'm on the earth. So there's mystery, I believe, in that variability and and it for fallen creatures the temptation is to make myself god to pretend that i have an absolute insight rather than an analogical insight as i try to think transcendently as i try to transcend here i am in one world right but what would it be like to survey many worlds it's a marvelous thing to be able to think that way you know, we're mm-hmm. not dogs who who don't raise their snouts above the ground, as it were, right? Here, we're soaring, we're imagining, you know, many universes. What a wonderful thing to be able to do, but are you praising God for it, or are you getting puffed up? 
Yeah, that, that's helpful. I've even mentioned a couple of times that um, the modern movies, you know, are, are an example of that, that we have all these tools at our disposal where we can create these worlds and these imaginary places. And it's, it, I think there's some, some similarities there between um, what we create cinematically and, and with fiction right. and then also, um, you know, these possible worlds that we have the ability to imagine as well. Yeah, and and some of the films even are exploring the issue of reality versus dream versus kind of constructed worlds. Mm -hmm. The Matrix, for instance, you know, is a sort of computer-constructed world. Mm -hmm. And that's a marvelous kind of thing, but it's also it's a tempting kind of thing, I think, for unbelievers to, to think and, and, and to say, well, you know, nobody could know. <laughs> you can't know whether you're in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Well... Because of the presence of God, we can know, (laughs) right? But we come to know, of course, through Christ and through Scripture, which is specifically a redemptive process because we've strayed from God and we rebel against Him. So the message of redemption, I think, is quite pertinent. Even, you know, when you get down to these things like modal logic of saying, how are you going to treat this? Are you treating it as if you were creator? Are you treating it praising God? for the abilities he's given you to model these things. And it's, it's a religious issue as well as an intellectual one. It is an intellectual issue, and it's an intellectual one where I can think I can challenge people to say, you're building a Lego town, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the real issue is not the wonder of this town, but how is the Lego town related to the real town? That's great. And then that, nobody's going to answer that for you by a technical formalism. Mm-hmm. You can't escape your own humanity and your responsibility to answer that question as a full human being living in the presence of God. And I think people are trying to escape that, right? Of thinking, if I just get rigorous enough, then, you know, I will find formal answers that will not involve a religious commitment. And I think that's one of the things that is kind of undercurrent. That that's very helpful. Maybe in order to set the stage a little bit with um, some of the details of, uh, for example, backing up the the syllogistic reasoning that you talk about, I I appreciated so much um, just all the careful analysis that you did on the relationship and the interdependence really between form and content, and um, you talk about how ordinary language impacts logic and the logical forms. You talk about. Uh, equivocation uh, and um, analogy and, and those types of concepts. So if you look at a syllogism, you know, we're, we're gaining information from reality, from the world, then we put that into ordinary language, and then that can even be symbolized. I was wondering, can you, can you help our listeners and, and, and us uh, think through what's going on when we look at a syllogism related to using ordinary language, equivocation, uh, analogy, and um, how, how have you thought through those issues? Right, yes. Well, again, I I enjoy formal logic, and a syllogism is a form of formal logic. Uh, all A is, is B, and, well, I say all B is C, all A is or B, therefore all A or C, that's the barbarous syllogism. I enjoy thinking about those things and the beauty and the power of it. But I also want to stand back and analyze it, you know, what, how does this work in the larger context of who we are as human beings made in the image of God? And I believe that these syllogisms go back in the end to 
a divine original, to God's self-consistency. But there also comes in human rebellion where we want to make it a purely formal process. It's form with no content. And that's really an illusion because we learn... We learn the general patterns through particular instances, and this is a Vantillian principle, but I think it goes back to the Bible, that the one and the many go together. And the one, the unity, is the unity of a single pattern, of a single syllogistic form. And the many are the many details that you could plug into that pattern. Well, I think there's a relationship, an interlocking, between those, and it goes into human learning. You don't teach syllogisms just by starting with a formalism. You start with life, right? And you, illustrations, and you lead people, you walk people into the formalism as a generalization. Well, the generalization is real, but it's not independent of the interlocking with life. There's another issue, and that's related to what you called uh, univocal and equivocal language that Aristotle himself saw that a syllogism would work as purely formal only if the terms were univocal, if they meant exactly the same thing every time they were used. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only way you could guarantee that the syllogism was airtight. Well, that's an idealization. Because, in fact, our own language and our own world and our own thinking about the world is shot through with analogy, and the biggest analogy of all is the analogy between our thinking and God's thinking. So you see, once once you're operating in terms of a creator-creature distinction, in terms of an equal ultimacy of one and many, you can see that there's a built-in idealization in the whole system of syllogistic reasoning. Doesn't mean it it can't be admired in its own way, but it can be a snare if you think this has gotten to the bottom of what logic really is. In fact, it's a simplification. If you think it's the real thing, you're again going to abolish the creator-creature distinction. Now, for me, this is really important because Aristotle's syllogisms have been the backbone for what rationality means essentially all the way through Western civilization from the Greeks onward, and it's all been univocal. It's all been one level rather than two-level thinking, that is, God and me. That's yeah. very helpful. Do- Dr. Poitras, I wonder if I could ask you a question on a somewhat different note, um, shift gears a little bit, and if you don't, if, if you are not comfortable answering this, that's fine, but you noted in a footnote that um, your approach to arguing that the laws of logic are part of the character of God is similar, although perhaps with some differences, to a recent argument mounted by James Anderson and Greg Welty, where they argued, it's been a while since I read it, but I think the shape of their argument was, the laws of logic are propositions which are true in all possible worlds. In other words, they're necessary metaphysical entities. um, And actually, I think, and they, they go on to argue that we should identify them with the thoughts of God. Uh, right, yeah. You, would you care to comment on any of that? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of similarity there. At the same time, I I have my reservations about that article because it sounds still univocal to me. It sounds still one level when you're talking about possible worlds and so on. And... Uh, 
So, you know, I wouldn't do it the same way. I think the idea that logic goes back to the mind of God is a good one, but logic in the mind of God is ultimately, it's the second person of the Trinity. It's God's self-consistency. It's incomprehensible. And we... Uh, our, uh, God reveals himself to us, and that's why our own minds function logically, but they always function dependently. And I, that note, I don't recall, it's, you know, my mind is dim right now, but I don't recall that that note is struck in the article. And I think any time that you don't strike the note, there is a, a good possibility of misunderstanding, because people are used to doing, people who are into doing these logical arguments. They're used to thinking on one level. That's the way it's done, so to speak, in the, you know, customarily. And I'm saying, don't do that any longer. <laughs> you know, and that's that's not easy to change. Well, that's, that's very helpful. And I mean, on that note, I have to say that that's one reason I'm so grateful for this book and for your work in particular is that I don't know anybody else who's ringing this bell and, uh, you know, I think back to your 1995 article on uh, reforming logic in light of <laughs> and ontology in light of the Trinity. And that just, I just saw the title of that when I was, you know, young, a kid and just blew my mind. I was like, Who, can you do that? Can you reform logic in light of the Trinity? But, uh, you know, when you think about it, you just, you, my Christian instincts said, yes, that's got to be right. So thank you so much for pursuing that project, which I hope continues to inspire uh, in the rising generation. Okay. Well, you're you're welcome. Although there's a story behind that, because I wrote that article, and then I thought, you know, this is programmatic, but now let somebody else can go and work it out, right? So then I waited 15 years, and eventually decided nobody else is going to do this. <laughs> so I better do it, or it won't get done. And that's why this book came to into existence. <laughs> I'm so glad. Thank you for doing it. I, I, that's fantastic. I was going to ask you on that related historical note. When were, I mean, I was just curious about when your big insights on these topics came. Um, uh, who were your big influences? What were the, has your thoughts developed even since you came out with that article on, on you know, this relationship between theology and, and logic? When were the kind of high points for you? Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to say. I think you know, I'm grateful to the Lord for what He's done uh, in my life, but it's hard to say exactly how how He did it. And it, there are our several points. I think the influence of John Frame and Kenneth Pike, uh, the one uh, Frame thinking about the role of the Word of God and the richness of multiple perspectives, and Pike thinking specifically about language helped me to have an initial uh, starting point. Of course, Van Til was of influence with the creator-creature distinction, and Van Til, seeing that a Christian approach to logic had to be different from the world. Uh, but it did, uh, I've continued to develop since the 1995, and there are things in this book that I didn't anticipate before. Uh, and partly it was just working through what it meant for a syllogism to work and realizing that there was this problem with a, with a univocal language. Aristotle had to assume 
I believe he was looking at things from a very much an uh, anti-theistic point of view, a, a non-Christian point of view. He had to assume, for the sake of the mastery by human rationality, with God out of the picture, that terms could be made univocal, and they could you know, mean exactly the same thing. And that's essentially saying the one is more ultimate than the many. And, you know, that was my an early clue. But since then, I think as I worked through the developments in redeeming science, I saw more things that could be sort of pulled over analogically. Uh, and just, you know, in the course of writing book, uh, I got some new ideas. <laughs> so, so I didn't know everything that was going to be in the book when I started it. That's great. Well, as you as you look um, as you look at the future, give us some more projects that, like the rising generation of people who want to develop these insights, should take on. What what yeah. work is left for us to do? Well, I think the area of academic studies in all fields that we ought to be sensitive to the fact it has to be rethought. I've dreamed of writing a book on redeeming chemistry because chemistry nowadays is one of the most cut and dried areas where it seems it just is what it is but what i what i myself did you know there's room for doing it in in art and business kuiper was right uh and people tried to carry out the project and i think some mistakes were made but i think kuiper's right jesus is lord of all of life so the potential is there, and we just need to work it through. But it's not easy because you have on the one side this antithesis, right, that unbelief is different from belief, and the, the difference between those goes very, very deep. It's not superficial. It's not, oh, change a thing here or there. And the other side is common grace. And I hope that's come out in the, in the logic book itself, in that I've learned a lot. I'm grateful to the Lord for the people he's raised up and has given common grace insights to through the centuries. As I give a whole list in the, uh, in the preface, uh, I think it is, of people that have made outstanding contributions in the history of logic. And, you know, I praise the Lord for that, but it, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm going to accept all that uncritically, right? I'm going to go through and I'm going to bring in a Trinitarian theology and a rich biblically-based way of thinking about the world, and then I'm going to try to reconfigure the whole thing. Well, I think that can be done not only in academic areas, but in other areas. I think about family life and other things. We just need to keep going at it. I'm going at it with a few books that are coming out. They're sort of in progress, or they're actually at the publisher now. One of them is on God or Chaos. It's about a God-centered approach to a chance and probability. Oh, great. So, and one of them is about redeeming philosophy. One of them is redeeming mathematics. So I've done sort of things that I, I felt more called to do, but there's plenty of areas out there that uh, to think through. That's great. I'll, I'll look for those for sure, and hopefully we'll we'll get you back on and talk about them. Um, last last question from me. Uh, I thought that 
uh, this probably should have been a first question, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, but I thought one of the most significant features of the book was the scripture index at the back. Um, it's five pages long, and, and the, re- the reason I mention that is because this is in a book on logic, that you have so many scriptural references uh, that are used as examples and principles uh, throughout the entire book on, on pretty much every subject that you mention. Um, and, you know, I guess I should say I have a motivation behind asking this question that uh, in the back of my mind, I think that you can exegetically arrive at uh, at least some philosophical, logical principles done consistently with with the passages themselves. In other words, that Scripture does comment on a lot of the things that, um, you know, we've mentioned so far even in this interview. Um, but the question is, I was, can you talk about the process of finding the biblical passage that you do use in the book to illustrate the points that you want to illustrate on logic, on the principles, on philosophy, um, and, and even the, the niche sections um, that you include in the book. What Was, was that... Um, yeah, can you just talk about that process, how intentional that was, um, what your thoughts are now that the book is finished and, and you look back on um, the exegetical points that you make? Well, I I wanted to articulate the fact that we need constantly to be going back to the Bible. Uh, it is the Word of God, and it is the spectacles. Calvin uses this analogy. It's the spectacles through which uh, we look at the rest of the world and begin more and more to understand the rest of that world rightly. So I've wanted to show that and encourage other people as well to show that my own thinking, how it was rooted in Scripture, and to encourage that process with other people. There's two temptations, I think. One is to become too much uh, a going for individual verses and not looking at the context and how they work in context. And I think some work has been done to find, for instance, various kinds of examples of, say, law of excluded middle or law of non-contradiction and so on, find examples of those in the Bible. Well, you can find examples of that, but the danger comes that really you're imposing a grid on the Bible rather than understanding the Bible for what it is, because it's always richer than uh, uh, formalized mm-hmm. logic. So the other danger, then, would be that you just become too general. Okay, I've got some general principles about the creator-creature distinction and about God's sovereignty, and then I'm just going to run with those. Well, if you were God, then that, that would work. <laughs> but... Because we're not God, we need to keep checking back, right? We need to be in communion with Him, and we need to be influenced by the full teaching of Scripture and not just by uh, abstractions out of that. So that's one of the things I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, But I didn't self-consciously uh, sort of think, uh, sort of rummage through the whole Bible. It was just, you know, I would be trying to illustrate a logical point and say, okay, now where in the Bible can I, uh, what in the Bible is relevant, and, and you know, picked out whatever verses I thought were appropriate for whatever topic I was discussing. Yeah, that, that's that's very helpful, and uh, I should also add it. It takes a, a mind like yours, I think, to have a, just a, a recall of um, those many verses in Scripture already in your head that you can pull from to to illustrate the points that you made. So I, I really appreciate that. 
Uh, I think that's a good place to end. Unless Nathan, you have anything that you want to add? No, just uh, Dr. Porter's my excitement about those forthcoming books that you mentioned. And again, my gratitude on behalf of really a generation of people who have been shaped by your work and project. Thank you for the inspiration that you've been and for, uh, for, for, your, for this contribution and the ones that are forthcoming. Well, oh, you're welcome. Uh, I may say one more thing. It just yeah. occurred to me uh, about the use of Scripture. Um, I've tried to memorize Scripture, and I would recommend it for other people, too. It helps with this kind of thing because then, you know, it, it's one aid among many. Just reading the Bible, of course, is another way, but it's one aid among many for really digesting the Bible and making it your own. That's a great point. Absolutely. And um, I'll also say we touched on the audience a little bit before, but I, I in my opinion, I think this is a, uh, a necessary addition to a theological library. I think um, anyone from a campus minister who is going to be ministering to you know, philosophy majors or, or people dealing in the sciences need, needs to pick this up. Um, pastors, especially with, with people who are dealing with this, or, or even um, just to kind of get some some concepts in their mind that, that are going to be helpful in this regard, I would just highly recommend it. I haven't got through all 700 plus pages yet, but the ones that I have gone through have just been tremendous. So from me as well, thank you very much for this. Uh, again, you can find um, this work. Uh, it's on Amazon, obviously. It's on WTSbooks.com. And uh, hopefully in the future, as Dr. Poitras's uh, upcoming works come out, we can talk to him about some of those. And uh, want to thank the listeners for tuning in and uh, join us next time on Philosophy for Theologians.